The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I'd like to start by just checking in and seeing how that went for you and whether there's any questions or comments. What did you notice um, in that style of walking practice, Elaine? It was pretty humorous because I realized I was efforting every... So when I was seeing, I was you know, putting some effort into it. And um, the humorous part of it was when I came to walking, I started doing the Steven Seagal walk. I mean, the, no, the, the uh, like, you know... <laughs> <laughs> um, because then I would I would feel it more. I see. Know? Oh, the moving, the moving <laughs> right. part. Okay, right. yeah. And uh, and with the feet, you know, with touching, I would start articulating every joint uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. with more intention. Uh-huh. And when I would see, I would start kind of going through a verbal description of what it was. Um, so it just noticed that every time I placed my attention on something. There was more effort. Uh-huh. And rather than just, this is what's happening. Uh-huh. So in that noticing, I mean, partly, I mean, what you're noticing probably is a habit of your mind to, when you direct attention someplace, to jump on it and little, do a little bit more with it. So um, that's partly just what your mind does. So it's not so much that we're trying to change that, but notice that that's happening. You know, so it does, does sound like you did notice that. Was there some belief that that shouldn't be happening? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I was kind of smiling at myself. Uh-huh, but, uh-huh. Oh, look what you're doing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You okay, know, good. Rather, so you, you saw it then. I saw it, and it wasn't like, oh, you bad girl. Okay, it was kind good. of like, oh, isn't that funny? Look uh-huh. what you're doing. Okay, good. You know? Yeah. So that, that's, that's a good step towards approaching meeting that pattern. Yes. You, you saw it then as a pattern as opposed to something that you were consciously doing. Right. Yeah. And then I thought, my mind immediately jumped on, okay, you know, you effort your whole life. And wouldn't it be lovely to not, to just be in that, con- in that plane of noticing but not really having to change it. So the, 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 the exploration for you then is around, can you not effort around noticing the efforting? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Elaine. <laughs> Betsy. Um, <laughs> I, I noticed um, two remarkable, I found them remarkable coincidences um, that my mind tried to make meaning out of. I had gotten down to the end of the block here and I had moved to the place where I'm moving from movement to contact. And at this moment that I moved to contact, my footsteps hit sidewalk that perceptibly changed in its feedback to me. It was no longer hard. It was soft and cushiony. <laughs> and I, whoa. I, I, <laughs> thinking that the power of this is really dramatic. Uh, <laughs> I'm in this place, this slightly surreal place, and then I start to hop up and down on the sidewalk, and it's truly spongy for about ten, ten pieces worth. Um, so I'm caught in this, you know, distilling what this might mean about the power of my practice, <laughs> that I would choose to go to contact at that moment, and I cross the street to go into the high school area for the open space. And at the, I am now entertaining because I've had to walk around several vehicles, which I don't experience as... I experience it as apart from seeing, hearing, movement, and contact. I experience it as obstacle in hmm. the path. Mm-hmm. And I'm now... I hear that. You know, I, I hear the thought. And I say, am I oriented towards obstacle? And a Prius drives up to me two nice human beings in the Prius. I observe they're nice. And <laughs> and man says to me, don't go any further. <laughs> Turn around. There's a crazy man on that bench, and he's chasing people just like you. You know, he's chasing single people walking, and I would turn around right now. And I just thought, 
opportunity for meaning creation. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I ended up, I mean, as well as being um, looking at this opportunity to, cr- to try to create meaning where there's probably no meaning, um, I, I did look at the, um, at the minds, at my mind's strong attraction towards like and dislike. Uh-huh, yeah. And that I was all right to stay with the moment and move from seeing to hearing to movement, so long as there was not a strong aversion or a strong... If it was kind of a little bit subtle aversion, it was all right. If it was subtle enjoyment, it was all right. But as soon as it amped up, I was out. That's when your mind got lost, mm-hmm. when, when it got really pleasant or really Pretty unpleasant. excited about that sidewalk. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you noticed uh, uh, that's great that you saw the, the kind of tendency to go when things get strongly pleasant or unpleasant. When you can begin to see, and this is something I'm just going to say for the whole group because this is really powerful in daily life, when you can begin to see when you are getting lost, so beginning to notice where your mind takes off, that's a really powerful thing because then you can start to, to get interested in kind of, kind of anticipating, okay, I'm heading into something where that situation might happen. Can I be a little bit more mindful there to, to begin to notice how I get, how I get lost in that? Mm-hmm. So noticing where you get lost is a great part of this practice, you know, to, to, to begin to see where you get caught and... Um, and see if you can, in finding patterns, you, you may well find patterns in ways that you get caught, and um, then you can bring attention to those patterns. And the meaning piece, that's another good one, because we are meaning-making machines. You know, We will make meaning out of minimal input. So that's, a, that's a, just a pattern, just to notice this is happening. Um, not to particularly try to stop it or change it, but recognize that it's a hab- habitual process that goes on in our minds. It gives us an opportunity to uh, be a little more reflective about the meaning that our mind creates if we're aware that it is creating the meaning. And it was a, uh, another opportunity to leave the present moment. Yes, it certainly is. <laughs> Lynn. Uh, mine was uh, my experience as I cycled through the four different categories is is that I um, they started to blur, and um, you know as I was on the seeing I would say a bee would pass by and I was oh an interesting sound or you know so I I went from although I intentionally tried to stay with each of the four categories as I cycled through my awareness seemed to. Um, be a little blurry and, from and the walking to the touching. To that the, yeah. that is actually I wouldn't say blurry. I mean that what you're describing is is a very natural manifestation of the mind actually becoming more clear. It's mm-hmm. not that it's becoming blurry. It's okay. it's that the categories. The ca- well, okay, the categories blurred, blurred right? Yeah. Um, you know that as we engage in this practice, the more familiar we get with it. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing for a while, and you will notice that that while you're seeing, that because you are engaged mindfully with seeing, you're also hearing, and you're also feeling the body move, and you're also noticing the contact, you're, and you're noticing a lot of other things. And at some point in this practice, you can let go of the segmenting of the categories and just see if you can notice what your mind is naturally doing in a moment. Um, you might find if you if you let go of the categories initially at least it seems that if you let go of the categories too soon, then you just start getting lost. That bee goes by, and instead of being oriented back towards seeing, you know, you hear the bee, and you know, then you get lost in in the thought of that because you're not oriented towards um, coming back. All the senses. Yes, yes. So. Um, over time, as you get more and more familiar with this and begin to see that, um, that, that, that it's not quite so hard and fast between the various uh, 
experiences, you can let go of breaking it into the pieces. But if you start to notice when you let go of the breaking it into the various aspects that the, your mind is getting lost more, bring them back. So the object is to really notice where, what senses are more dominant for you and which are more, maybe need development. Um, you know, if you tend to be more of a seeing person versus a hearing. Or, uh, That's, that is one effect of this practice. It, it does tend to highlight for us places where we may not be quite as attuned. Perhaps it's harder for us to be attentive in hearing. Um, than it is in seeing. Or perhaps seeing is where we just leave, you know, that our, it's really hard for us to be with seeing. Um, so we do get an instruction in that. Partly the, the I mean, there's, the point of the, of the exercise is to bring mindfulness to a larger range of experience while walking and to get familiar with what that larger range of experience is so that you can eventually just uh, let go of the tool and be mindful. And then I think just one more and then we'll move on to the next theme. Um, okay, so um, I was able to um, focus, concentrate on the different seeing, hearing, and everything. And um, it was just so unbelievably pleasant. It happens every time I do it, and it's just, I don't want to stop doing it. It's just really pleasant, really, really pleasant. And um, it was like paradise for me. And I was really focusing, and then I was like, I was just so pleasurable to, to have the different senses isolated like that. Uh-huh. Um, of course, on the other hand, um, I was listening to pleasant sounds and seeing pleasant sights. Hello. I wasn't focusing on, you know, what I would consider unpleasant sides. So that might, you might have had a different report. <laughs> so, you know, it was pleasant um, and very relaxing. And then what I noticed toward the end is um, I had eye contact with uh, some certain people. And... Um, then I noticed that that triggered an association, and I was surprised how fast that was. Mm-hmm. And um, I almost started crying because uh, it brought up profound loss and grief. Mm. Um, but you saw that connection. You saw the oh, immediately the causal links between the events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because uh, these two people were on their way to a social event. And I could see that. And then it was amazing. It, my, mo- my mind moved very quickly to how, you know, that's some, uh, part of a life that I had in the past. So it brought up grief and mm-hmm. loss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need to get, I have to work with that. Um, and then also some visual eye contact with some other people. Um, and that also made me uncomfortable with a certain person and I immediately connected to oh yeah used to be like that and it brought up very profound loss I said thank you Mm -hmm. thank you thank you so part of what I think you're pointing to is that um, you know as we begin to well there's a couple pieces you talked about the pleasurableness of being engaged and that is part partly I mean, as she pointed out, she was engaged in a situation that it was more pleasant than not for her. Um, but on the other hand, often we can walk down the street and not notice the pleasurableness of just seeing the grass and seeing the trees and feeling the breeze on our face and feeling our body moving through space. And so the, the mindfulness can bring us to a place where we can connect with more ordinary experience and find that it's actually quite pleasurable. And also another piece of it is that as the mindfulness gets more present, as we are more present in our experience, when things are unpleasant, the fact that we're present for them somehow seems to balance a little bit of that unpleasantness. 
And it can be, there can be times when we are present for things that are very unpleasant, and yet the mind can feel quite joyful about that. So there, there is the power of the mindfulness of connecting with experience to bring some of these beautiful qualities of mind into our, uh, into our experience. And the other piece that, that I think she was pointing to is that as the mindfulness begins to get more continuous, you start to see how your mind does what it does. You start to see how some event, something triggers an association, which triggers a reaction, which triggers an emotion. And that's just a very step-by-step process. So it's not, it's not so much that we're trying to stop those processes as we are trying to be aware of them. When we can see those processes at play, then we start to realize that, that they're caused, they're caused, they're, there's, there's causes and conditions at play in creating our emotions. And we're not simply at the whim of our, uh, you know, some patterns of mind that just kind of appear randomly. There are actually causes that make these patterns come back. And so we can begin to reveal that. Um, We can begin to see that clearly in our experience as the mindfulness gets stronger. So I'd like to talk about some of the ways to support having mindfulness get stronger in our daily lives. And mindfulness can actually get quite strong in our daily lives. We can clearly begin to see just this kind of thing of cause, cause and effect relationship between events through the, um, the practice of just trying to keep remembering to be mindful. That is really the key. I mean, actually, the term mindfulness itself, sati in uh, Pali, that the term Uh, for mindfulness, the Pali term, is related to the root word for memory, to remember. And so mindfulness is about remembering. Remembering awareness, remembering yourself, essentially. And that remembering is the hardest part about it. We get caught by our experience and we forget that we have this capacity to be aware. And we don't particularly uh, appreciate the value of that being aware either. And so we will get lost. We do get lost. We cultivate in our sitting practice, we cultivate the mindfulness by coming back to our present moment experience every time we notice we're lost in thought. We wake up lost in thought. Mindfulness returns spontaneously in that moment when we notice that we've been lost in thought. And in that moment, often we choose to direct our attention to some particular experience, like the breathing. So our practice in sitting meditation has some supports to help us remember. The fact of sitting in particular is one, you know, sit there with our eyes closed and we notice we're lost in thought. We notice we wake up noticing that we're having a conversation with somebody and we're sitting there silently with our eyes closed and it's kind of obvious that we're not actually having that conversation. So we remember. Oh, and that the stillness of the body, the posture, also supports remembering that what we're trying to do, what our intention is, is to cultivate mindfulness. The uh, coming back to a particular experience, such as the breath, also supports that remembering in our sitting meditation. Because we we notice more quickly when we have a chosen object to attend to, we, we tend to notice more quickly when we've forgotten that object. So there's some supports in our sitting practice that help us to remember about mindfulness, that help us with this remembering. In our daily lives, those go away. So we... Um, we have a much harder time remembering to be mindful. And so what I like to suggest, one of the main tools I like to suggest for people is to pick something that can serve as a kind of a touchstone for you, something that will serve as a, um, a kind of a, an experience that will help you to know how much you have been mindful 
during your day. So what I like to suggest is for you to pick some event, some experience, some action that you do, that you do regularly throughout your day. It might be something like standing up or walking through doorways or if you sit in front of a computer a lot of the day, it might be something like clicking send for email. Some, some experience that happens to you regularly through the bulk of your day. And then resolve or commit to try to remember to be aware when that event happens. Now, the things I've suggested, standing up, walking through doorways, clicking send for an email, those things happen really fast. They're just a a split second. It's really, really likely engaging in this practice that you are not going to remember a lot of those. In fact, if you pick something now, like standing up or sitting down, actually. Some people find sitting down to be easier because when you're standing up, you're often getting ready to go somewhere and your mind has already gone forward into that thing. When you're sitting down, you're coming into stillness. And so it can be a little bit easier to remember um, the mindfulness as you're coming into stillness. So that's a a thought. Um, So picking something that happens regularly through your day like that to try to remember to be mindful of At first, when you try to do this, you're not going to remember. You're not going to remember. I'm going to emphasize that. You are not going to remember. It's not a failure if you don't remember. You will at some point recall, oh yes, I had planned to be aware when I sat down. And I must have sat down 25 times today and I didn't remember once. When you remember that you have forgotten, you are mindful. That is a moment then and there that you are mindful. It's a moment of mindfulness that you would not have recognized had you not had something as a, as a touch point, as a touchstone. In that moment then of remembering that you've forgotten, I have a couple things I'd like you to check in with. One, you're mindful then and there. Take in what's happening. Just notice what's obvious, kind of in a light way, a very light touch. Just notice where you are, how you're situated. Is there tension or ease? Just kind of in a very light way. Notice what's happening for you. The second thing I'd like to suggest in that moment of remembering you've forgotten is to resolve to try again. Just say, okay, well, I've forgotten all day long, but I'm going to keep trying. No need to beat yourself up. No need to have a sense of anger or aversion or telling yourself, oh, I can't do this. I'm so stupid. Actually, that first time you remember about your task, about this, this task that happens regularly through the day, the first time you remember you've forgotten, that is when that practice begins it's not an indication that you failed. It's an indication that it's starting. So in that starting, recommit to that practice. This is a practice of, of resolve and of an intention. And intention is very powerful. The intention to keep directing a, uh, our attention towards particular experience. It's a very powerful way to... Um, have our minds move in a particular direction. So you'll, you'll notice that you know, you've forgotten, and over, the, over some t- period of time, you'll start noticing that you have remembered that you've forgotten more frequently. So you might remember that you've not paid attention to this thing, sitting down, three or four times during the day. None of which are connected with sitting down, you know, they're connected with walking across the street to go to the parking lot or, or they're connected with getting a glass of water from the refrigerator and, you know, you're, you're moving in your arm into the, wa- into the refrigerator and you remember, oh, I haven't remembered about sitting down. In that moment, again, just take it in, keep resolving. What seems to happen in this practice is that the, every time you resolve in that kind of gentle way, 
Every time you notice that moment of remembering is a moment of mindfulness and you resolve in a gentle way to keep trying, it seems to spur the mind to remember it's forgotten more frequently. And eventually, at some point, you'll actually notice in the vicinity of the experience. So you've just sat down and you've started engaging in work on the computer and you remember, oh, I just sat down. Two minutes ago, I sat down. I didn't notice it then, but here I am now. When you start to see the awareness coming a little bit closer to the event, that means the mindfulness is getting even stronger. At some point, it will land on the event. And at that point, that event can start to serve as a mindfulness bell for you. It can start to serve as a mindfulness reminder. There are people here who've done this retreat a number of times. And quite often they report when they start uh, one of these daily life practice retreats a second or third or fourth time that the things they've chosen before for their task start coming up as triggers for them. One person mentioned last week, she, you know, we're, we're starting the retreat this week, and she said, yeah, I'm, I'm already starting the retreat. I noticed that I'm reaching for my shampoo in the shower. And that was one of the things, that reaching was one of her tasks at one point. So it's, it has started to, to kick in, that that triggers mindfulness. So um, the thing you choose isn't so important It's not magic, whatever the thing you choose is. It's just to pick something that happens regularly through your day. I'd like to suggest you try to find something that happens, say, two or three times an hour or more, possibly, if if you can find something like that. And the, um, the point of it isn't so much that you begin to... Um, land and have be mindful of that experience in particular, per se... The point of it is to serve as a reference point, to serve as a kind of as a reminder for when we wake up into mindfulness spontaneously, which happens to us regularly throughout the day, that we, re, that we recollect that moment, that we remember that moment. And having a, a task with which to connect mindfulness, seems to support the mind's ability to connect with mindfulness when it arises. And that's the most important part about this, is, is beginning to get familiar and connect with the experience of coming into mindfulness. What does it feel like when you remember that you've forgotten? In that moment, mindfulness has re-arisen. Can you notice what it feels like to be mindful? And connect it, connect it with your chosen task. And I'll say much more about this as we go on in the week, but I think that's enough for now with respect to that task to kind of get you started. And I do have some handouts here that describe a little bit about these exercises that I'm going to offer this week. Um, so you don't have to, to worry about taking too many notes. Um, so this... This task that happens regularly through your day, to me it kind of serves almost like the breath in our sitting meditation practice. It's a point of reference. The breath serves as a point of reference for us in our sitting meditation so that when we wake up, we remember, oh, right, I was going to be paying attention to my breath. Come back to the breath. In our daily life, We, um, you know, if we have this thing that's happening regularly through our day, it's basically giving us some kind of a sense of feedback of how often our minds are completely lost and how often they're coming back into mindfulness. So that's that's one um, piece that I'd like to, to suggest for you this week. Picking something as a reference point to help you know how much mindfulness is coming up for you in the days. The other thing I'd like to suggest, um, the, the, the kind of task that's happened regularly through the day is often something that ta- is a split second. You know, clicking send for the email, walking through doors, 
something like that. It happens really fast. It's come and gone so fast. You can't really um, hang out in that space. You can try to hang out in the space of mindfulness a little bit, although I don't even suggest... In mindfulness in daily life, one of the other key pieces is that it can't feel like a burden. We often feel like, I don't have time to be mindful. I've got too many other things to do. So if we think of mindfulness as something extra we're adding into our day, we're probably not going to engage with it so much. So what I'm encouraging here is a very light approach, a very light touch to to noticing those moments when you are mindful, recognizing mindfulness has arisen, kind of coast on that if you can, but not kind of whipping up the effort to try to stay mindful. That will probably make you uninterested in the practice pretty quickly. So partly what we do is we we begin to notice these split seconds of mindfulness that come up through the day. And having something that it serves as a touchstone will will tend to make those split seconds of mindfulness become more clear. And it begins to draw a thread of very light mindfulness throughout the day. It begins to draw that thread that's not effortful. It's just kind of the natural awareness that happens. I mean, like right now, can you be aware of the sensation of your buttocks touching the bench or chair or cushion? Can you be aware of the sensation of your hands? It doesn't take much effort, does it? It just takes remembering. So that, that's, that's the first kind of tool that I like to offer people. It's a, it's a very helpful it's a tool. It's not something that um, is the end-all and be-all. I mean, mostly what we're doing is finding tools to help us remember mindfulness. When you can start remembering mindfulness on its own, then you can let go of the tools. But I, I'd suggest that for most of you, having a tool to help you will, will spur the mindfulness during the week. So the other piece I'd like to suggest as a kind of a basic tool is to pick something that you do once or twice a day um, that takes a little bit longer time, you know, anywhere from two to five minutes or something. It might be something more like a chore, you know, making your bed, um, brushing your teeth, the whole aspect of morning um, preparations for, um, you know, showering or um, getting dressed, something, something that takes a, a period of time, two to five minutes, and see if in that particular time you can begin to get familiar with what it's like to draw a, um, a, a more continuous thread of mindfulness over time. So that that's an actual little bit of efforting to stay present for anywhere from two to five minutes. So not, I'm not talking a long time here. I'm just talking picking one or two times a day to explore a slightly longer period of can you remember. And probably in that two to five minutes, you'll, you'll, you'll get lost in some thought and remember and get lost in a thought and remember multiple times. And again, that's not a problem. It's just the way our minds work. So those two pieces are kind of the, the foundation for beginning to draw our mindfulness into our daily lives. Picking something that happens regularly through the day and picking a chore. And this notion of light touch. Really, really light touch. It's... Um, in our daily lives, we need to engage with content. This is one another area that's a huge difference between um, daily life mindfulness and sitting meditation mindfulness. In sitting meditation, we have the luxury of letting go of content. We can let go of our thoughts and come back to our experience in the present moment. We don't have to, for the period of half an hour or so, worry about what we're thinking about. We can let it go. 
In our daily lives, we often do need to engage. We need to plan. We need to think about the task that we're doing at work. So in our daily lives, we need to balance this mindfulness with content. So it can help to kind of have, again, a light touch, but a sense of engaging with this practice with the notion of 50% of your attention on what you're doing and 50% of your attention on the awareness of what you're doing. So that there's a, uh, a connection between how we're engaging and what we're engaging in. This, this practice, actually, this 50-50, is a great support for beginning to be able to think and have content and not get lost in that content to stay connected with how are we responding to what we're thinking about? How are we responding to what we're reading, to what we're hearing? So that we stay connected with our experience. So I want to stop there for, um, for just a moment and check in and see if there's any questions or comments before I go on to the next piece that I'd like to, to work with. Yeah, in the back. And the, somebody pass the mic back. Okay, so my question is, as you get better with this process, mindfulness, um, say, for example, right now, if I'm totally mindful, I'm listening to you talk, but you also mentioned, do I feel my hands, or I feel my buttocks sitting on the chair? I mean, whatever it is. I mean, am I supposed to experience all that all at the same time, or how does that work? Well, mostly, um, I mean, attention seems to be able to pick up one thing at a time. Um, but what we seem to... The attention can move rapidly between experiences. So it's not so much that we're trying to be mindful of everything that's happening. What we're working towards is to be mindful of what's obvious. What is our mind kind of naturally gravitating towards? So that we can be aware of both you know, how our mind gravitates towards something, but also how we respond to what it gravitates to. Because often when we gravitate to something, there can be some kind of liking or disliking going on, some kind of greed or aversion going on, some kind of reactivity that's in the process of developing as our mind gravitates towards something. So that's the main area that we're exploring here, is what is it that's kind of naturally what, that, what our mind wants to pay attention to and how are we responding to that. So those two pieces. So not so much that you're trying to somehow be aware of everything that's happening at the moment. That can, you know, you can be aware kind of in a very global sense um, of many experiences, but... Um, that's not what we're. That's not the point so much. Much more, what we're looking for or what we're moving towards is an understanding of how our minds engage with experience, how we react, how we um, can't. Do, do we feel at ease or tense around particular experiences? So that's kind of the the place I like to suggest people begin is in noticing what your mind is doing. So, you know, you're, you're sitting there at the computer and you're typing in an email. You know, and that's, there's, there's all of the stuff going on, on around that, the sensation, the contact of the fingers, the sensation of your butt on the chair, the sight of the email, the thoughts that you're going through your mind around what you're saying. So there's a lot of stuff happening in a particular moment, thousands of things, millions of things happening in, in the moment. But the, the most important thing is to notice what is your mind gravitating towards? Is it gravitating, as you're reading an email, is it gravitating towards um, picking up on um, things that the person has said in that email that uh, you disagree with? Or is it perhaps gravitating towards things that they, how they have agreed with you? And how do you feel about that? So kind of like 
What are you noticing and how are you responding? Just the obvious uh, aspects of that. So one of, the, one of the things I'll say a lot probably this week is to just notice what is obvious uh, in your experience. And that's the place to begin. Thank you for asking that. Any other questions? Okay. So the next piece I want to talk about is um, is a theme for the week. And this is a, a kind of a way to orient us all towards a, a kind of a common practice. Um, and what I'd like to suggest for the theme for this week is wise and mindful speech. A speech is... It's a really hard place to bring mindfulness into. And it is also one of the areas that in our daily lives, if we can begin to bring mindfulness to our speech, we really begin to make inroads into our mindfulness and our reactivity and our responsiveness to our environment and to the people around us. So it's a great place of exploration and it's also quite challenging it is um, probably one of the most difficult places to cultivate mindfulness so in this practice there are some specific suggestions that are offered by the Buddha around being aware while speaking and he suggests uh, four particular guidelines around speech. He suggests that, and, and these, these are guidelines phrased kind of similarly to the precepts in a way, that they're phrased as types of speech to avoid, as the precepts are uh, phrased as types of actions to avoid. The, uh, the guidelines around speech are phrased as types of speech to avoid. So he suggests, the Buddha suggests, avoiding... Um, False speech, which is one of the precepts. He suggests avoiding um, harsh speech, which is speech that's intended to hurt someone, often using harsh language, harsh words. Uh, The false speech is also... uh, uh, Let me say a word about false speech. It is speech intending to deceive. So there's an intention piece that is an aspect of each of these types of speech to avoid. That uh, false speech is an intention to deceive. So avoiding false speech is avoiding that um, speech that is motivated out of that intention. Avoiding harsh speech is avoiding speech that is motivated out of the intention to hurt and speak harshly. The third is divisive speech, avoiding divisive speech, which is speech that is intended to divide people from each other, to create divisions, separations between people. So the kind of thing where, you know, you might, um, you know, tell somebody about something somebody did to you in order to create a closer link with you and to create a separation with that other person. That would be divisive speech. And again, it's with the intention towards creating division. Then there is um, one of the hardest, idle chatter, <laughs> uh, which is speech with, uh, without any intentional purpose. <laughs> um, so engaging with these, just right now reflect, since I have mentioned them just briefly, reflect for yourself about each of these and see, can you think of which one might be for you one that um, would be an interesting one to explore for the week? Yeah. Um, So on the harsh speech, you made the point of intention. Yes, they're all uh, connected with intention. Right, (laughs) and so I have um, two teenage daughters. And so I have no intention to be harsh with them. 
And yet, on reflection, I can see clearly that in that moment, it comes across. It can come across very harshly. And so, you know, it's only with the benefit of hindsight that I'm then able to say, okay, I'm sorry about that, and here's what happened, and this is what was going on. Yes. So there was a subtler intention that you couldn't see, perhaps. So it's like there, there, are, there are intentions that are very obvious to us, and there are intentions that are kind of below the level that we can see. Um, and they both are, they both are um, part of this exploration. And so what you talk about is like seeing in hindsight, oh, actually, I was feeling a little bit grinchy when I spoke to them that way. So there, there was a little bit of that energy behind that. So um, we can begin to learn. And, and partly, I think, the Buddha is pointing to these four because um, if you are engaging in false speech, divisive speech, harsh speech, in particular, if you're engaging in those four, probably there is some kind of skewed intention underneath, even if we don't, aren't consciously aware of it. So I think he's suggesting a reflection on these um, so that we can begin to uncover some of those deeper intentions that aren't so obvious to us. So intention is a very interesting thing to explore, and I will talk more and more about this during the week. Um, it's, a, you know, intention. There's a, a kind of intention that underlies every single action, whether it's physical action, an action of speech, or um, a, a, even a mental a- action. You know, that, that, you know, every act of body, speech, or mind, there's an intention to underneath. And mostly they are below the level of what we can consciously be aware of. But the mindfulness practice, at least in my experience, the mindfulness practice begins to kind of like lower the horizon of what we might call the unconscious or subconscious, so that we can start to see into very fine uh, levels of uh, intentionality in our minds that we would not have been able to see without the mindfulness. So the intention piece is, is important. Um, and it also is helpful to use reflection when you notice in retrospect, if, you're, if it's being reflected back to you that you're speaking harshly or that you spoke in a divisive way, if it's being reflected back for, to you, you can, you can reflect, okay, and you're, it didn't seem like at the time there was harshness, but, but it's worth reflecting back on what was going on in that experience. So that we, it's, that's kind of bringing thoughtfulness and reflection to our experience. And this is a, another piece that I'll bring in through the day, I mean through the week, around using reflection. Using reflection is a really helpful part of our daily life practice to, um, to not just go through the day, you know, just being mindful of, you know, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, but also being thoughtful about what we're experiencing, why we're doing things. Uh, yeah. Did you mention the intention um, with idle chatter? I said it was, uh, that often it's kind of, without it, like without a conscious intention, um, but it does have an intention underneath it. You know, sometimes idle chatter is motive, and this is very interesting to watch, you know, actually, if you start looking at idle chatter. You know, sometimes idle chatter is intended to, um, you know, make yourself look good in the eyes of the people that you're around. You know, oh, I know so much, you know, that, you know. Um, Or it's designed to uh, bridge a feeling of, you know, uncomfortableness with somebody, that, uh, you know, you, it, it doesn't feel comfortable to sit there in silence. So I'll say anything at all, you know, isn't this nice weather? <laughs> you know, anything to, to, to not be in this space of silence. And so it can be a kind of an aversion to um, a place of, you know, meeting some, that kind of awkwardness of, of silence with somebody. Or it can actually, what seems to be idle chatter, can actually have an underlying motivation to connect. You know, that 
you are, um, you know, like with my mom, sometimes I'll talk about basketball. And I know she loves basketball. So, you know, we connect that way, talking about basketball. Now, the Buddha recommended not talking about, you know, games and sports and things like that. He says that's idle chatter. But the underlying motivation there is to connect. And so, to me, it doesn't seem like idle chatter. It, it's not idle. The intention underneath is not idleness. There's a, there's a, there's a deeper purpose to it. So it's not, it's not idle. So really exploring the intention, particularly around idle chatter, what seems to be idle chatter, is very, is very interesting. Any other? Yeah, Tanya. Um, I struggle a lot with um, being in the middle of a conversation and wondering, you know, sort of tracking what is my, my intention, right? And, and um, sometimes what's, what seems like a kind thing ends up at later feeling like not a kind thing to me or to the other person in some way. Um, so I'm, and I think this has to do partly with intention, like what is my intention in the conversation and, and um, uh, to create ease or connection or whatever. And then at some point maybe I don't say something that I'm aware of right? Feeling, thinking, seeing. And I guess I'm wondering if you have a recommendation for just sort of a, an overarching intention with speech that might be a helpful reference point. Well, the Buddha actually recommended a couple. He suggested that we, um, I mean, kindness is an overarching intention that we could use, but he also recommended um, to, you know, given that our speech meets these guidelines of not being false or harsh or divisive or idle, he had some, some other things to suggest. He said that we should speak when it's beneficial. So to connect with beneficial, you know, something that will be beneficial in speech. And um, also a consideration around, is this a good time to speak, so to um, to reflect on kind of the the context we're in. So that one, to me, the, the the one about is it a good time to speak about this is looking at the context of what we're saying. It's who's in the room. It's uh, what's the state of mind of myself of the other person. Um, will the other person be able to hear what I'm saying? So that there's, you know, the, those two pieces are, are helpful additional reflections when, um, when speaking. Um, let's see if I can, other, other thoughts I have about that. I, th- I think... Um, I think connecting as best you can with the intention towards kindness and um, presence. Those two pieces. I'm just going to say a couple more words before I take more because I do have some other things I want to do today. Um, so in terms of working with speech, you know, these, these four aspects of uh, wise speech that the Buddha recommended can help us in being mindful of our speech. They can support our uh, re- ref- reflecting and recollecting around how we are engaging with speech. And still it can be difficult And so I'm going to offer some kind of more general suggestions around speech that um, will help just in terms of generally being mindful of speech. So the theme for the week is wise and mindful speech. So wise speech is these refraining from these particular kinds of speech. And mindful speech is the more general ability to be aware that you're speaking while you're speaking. 
to know what's going on inside of you while you're speaking, to be connected with how you're responding to what other people are saying. So it's got both a component of the listening and of speaking. And the, the, the biggest support for this, if you can remember, is to pause before speaking. This is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> if you can remember to pause before speaking, you have caught the intention to speak. You have noticed that you're going to speak before you speak. That is essentially noticing the intention, knowing what's going to happen before you actually do it. So if you can pause before you speak, you, you have caught that intention. And in that moment, in that pause, you will probably know, or you may know, what you are about to say. And in that knowing what you are about to say, you can take a moment to check in too of maybe the motivation, why you're about to say it. So that pause opens up the window towards knowing what you're going to say and the motivation to why you might say it. So if you can pause, it's very powerful. Now, cultivating and remembering to pause is hard. This is... It, it, takes, it's, it takes a long time. And um, there are certain situations, certain scenarios, for, for instance, at work, where if you pause before speaking, you will never get to speak because people are just jumping in before people have even finished their sentences. So one thought in that environment uh, that comes from the work of nonviolent communication is to insert a slight um, kind of restatement of what the person just said so that you've got a moment to reflect on what you're going to say while you are restating that. So it inserts a kind of a pause in the conversation through, well, as I understand what you just said, it was such and such, which slows it down just a little bit, slows the conversation down just a little bit and gives you a chance to then say and know that you're going to speak. So if you can remember to do that rephrasing, you have also caught the intention to speak. So pausing, pausing before speaking. If you find that it's really hard to remember to do this in your normal everyday conversations with people, I'd like to suggest that you see if you can find somebody you can practice this with. I mean, partly we don't get to be mindful while speaking because we don't practice being mindful while speaking. So set up a mindful lunch date with somebody or you know, pick a time where you can talk to somebody on the phone and, and agree, this is how we're going to do this. We're going to speak mindfully. So doing it with somebody who knows what you're doing so that the pause doesn't feel awkward so that um, they can support your remembering, you can support their remembering. So um, it is really hard to remember. The easiest place to remember being mindful while speaking, at least in my own experience, is if you're talking about being mindful of speech. So that's a place to begin if you have a conversation with somebody, is to start by just talking about what does it feel like to be aware while speaking. And we're actually going to do this in a few, in a few minutes. We're going to try this as, a, as an exercise of um, getting in small groups and, and trying this exploration of talking about what it feels like to be mindful while speaking. Let's see if there's anything else. There's a lot to say about mindful speech, but actually I'm going to talk about it tomorrow night. That will be the, the topic of the Dharma talk tomorrow night, so um, I'll, I'll cover it in a little more uh, detail there. And I also have stuff on the handout, um, more information on the handout. Um, any other questions? And then we'll take a short break. Yeah, in the back. Where's the mic? 
I don't. I don't think that's on. Is that? Okay, now it's green. Uh, is it on now? Yes. Okay. So how does white lies fit into this intention and false speech? I mean, obviously, you, sometimes you tell white lies to be kind to somebody, so to speak. Yes, um, and so that's a, a, another really good exploration. Um, you know, that sometimes we, we are deceitful or tell a, a lie with the intention of protecting somebody or, you know... Um, preventing them from being hurt, yeah. and so the you know that there's multiple intentions going on. You know, there's the intention towards um, preventing them from being hurt, and the intention to lie. They're both there. What I'd like to suggest is that perhaps there might be another way. I mean, explore it. I mean, we so quickly will move to white lie. It's it's a, such an easy thing to do for us. Is there another way to express the? Um, the um, the concern and the caring for that person than by telling a white lie. So as an exploration around it. Um, and to look too, I mean, is this white lie, uh, you know, unveil, you know, hiding something that, you know, for instance, you know, you have, you're having an affair with somebody and you know it would hurt your partner if you tell them you're having that affair. But it's unveiling, I mean, it's like it's unveiling a deeper kind of falsity. Um, so if you're noticing white lies kind of happening, it's worth looking. Is there some kind of more underlying pattern, too, that might need some exploration? Um, but, you know, there can just be white lies like That you know, if you say something to somebody, that it would it would it would it would hurt them, and it's you know. So, explore the intention towards kindness, and can you find a way to connect with that intention more than the intention towards being deceitful? Is there some other way than by being deceitful to express that that kindness? Okay. So, if the intention is is I mean, it's pure. It's just not to hurt the other person's feeling. But you can't really find another way of, you know, expressing it. Well, the you know the um, the um, understanding around how these things work is that I mean I'm not gonna, I'm, I, I'm I'm not going to say well in that case it is okay to lie because it, you know essentially it is in your own mind that this is this movement towards um, lying is having some kind of a of a of a repercussion. So it, it, it will be at least the understanding. So this is in, in kind of the teaching of karma, you know, that essentially the underlying intentions that we act out of are what lead us either towards happiness or towards suffering. And um, in that case of, a, you know, there's the, the, the skillful intention of not wanting to cause harm and the unskillful intention of being deceitful. And so they kind of, you know, they're they're kind of acting together in that time, and you know the um, the unskillful intention does have an impact on your mind. It's it's not that it's um, you know, and, and sometimes we have to choose. Sometimes we do have to make choices. That okay, in this situation, I need to to break this precept, but doing it consciously and doing it uh, knowing full well that this has some, some repercussions, you know, that it does have repercussions, actually. So, you know, it's, 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 you know, the weight of that kind of lie is probably not as great. I mean, like, another one that, that we use a lot is exaggeration, you know. We exaggerate things. When we tell stories, it's, it's, it's more humorous. We think it's more humorous to exaggerate. And, you know, that kind of thing, you know, the, the, the karmic weight of that is probably not terribly heavy, but it does have some kind of um, repercussion on your mind. So just, just know that. And um, we have to make choices sometimes. We have to make choices that way. Okay, so um, sort of along the precept, one last question is, 
the killing, the intention of killing. Um, you mentioned an exception, which is accidental. Um, but what about just self-preservation or protecting your family, somebody, that sort of situation? Yeah, again, you know, it's, uh, there is that intention. There's, two, there's the wholesome intention of protection and the unwholesome intention of killing. Or, I mean, actually, um, you know, the, um, you can, the, the, to defend yourself, you know, that it's, if you just are defending yourself, then that's actually not considered the intention to kill. Or, you know, it's like, suppose you're standing on the edge of a cliff and somebody strikes out at you and you, you kind of go like that as they're striking out at you and they fall off the edge of the cliff. Your intention isn't to kill them, but the effect is that they, they die. So the intention piece is important to notice there. And again, you know, it's again the, the, mixed, the mixed motivations. There will be some karmic repercussions. I mean, imagine how you might feel. You are protecting your family, and yet there is a being that dies as a result there is some impact of that on your mind and body. It's not hard and fast. It's not hard and fast rules of like, if you do that, you go to hell. I mean, that's not the way karma works. You know, it's, it's much more the, the, the kind of looking at the entirety of how we engage. You know, if you've, oh, the, there's one teaching around karma that, that I think is relevant here, that the... Um, the Buddha talks about, you know, so there's some people who may do an action, an unwholesome action, and for that they'd go to hell. You know, that they would, even, even you know, maybe you don't think of it as, as a, you know, an actuality of hell, but, you know, just mentally they'd go to hell. You know, I've had that feeling of just being in a hell realm of being, you know, beating myself up and telling myself what a horrible person I am because of a, of, because of a particular action. And he said, and some people might do that very same action, and for the most part, it would just, you know, appear and disappear in an instant, and is hardly felt at all. And it has to do with kind of the container in which that event happens. If there's a container of wholesomeness, and there's a small unwholesome event that happens, it probably won't be felt very much. If there's a container of unwholesomeness, a small unwholesome action may be felt or have a, a stronger impact. So the, the analogy the Buddha uses is like putting a teaspoon of water, a teaspoon of salt into a glass of water. And that if you put a teaspoon of salt into a glass of water, that glass of water is undrinkable. But if you put that teaspoon of water into a river and then take a, a scoop of that glass, a glass of the river water, you're not going to taste the salt. So it's kind of got to do more with the context into which these actions happen. And we, we are trying, in a way, to move ourselves towards more and more wholesome actions. And there are times when we almost seem to have no choice but to engage in unwholesome actions. So we need, what we need to do is to make those conscious so, they're not, so that we're not being deluded about them. And to um, and to know how we are kind of intentionally wanting to move forward. So let's um, let's take about a ten minute. Actually, let's say it's a five minute break because it will be about ten if we take a.